Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, my man, what is going on today? Not so much. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, I recently heard a joke about the first 15 minutes of every podcast is just people talking back and forth about nothing. So we're going to cut that off right now and dive right in. Today, listeners, we are going to talk about what Steve and I call tools for right thinking. And what this means in short is this. There is so much information out in the world, so many tools, concepts, principles, whether it's in the space of performance, self-help, physical health, mental health, nutrition, fitness, philosophy, religion, the internet in particular, has just completely widened the aperture on available information, and it's really hard to discern what works to separate signal from noise. And that's what we're going to talk about today. All right. I love how you just cut through the BS and we're going right into it, which uh, fits with right thinking. You know, this topic came about, Brad, as I think it actually it actually started with a tweet that I sent saying, like, we need better science education. And then you came in with, you know, we actually need essentially uh, Buddha, Charles Darwin, and Mary Oliver, which is right. Okay. But it's interesting. And then we look at, you know, our our posts from when we're recording this, our, our newsletter posts, and yours is heavy philosophical. And mine is like heavy nerding out on the science. Right. I believe Steve's newsletter post, um, the most recent one that we published last week is the science of freaking out. And mine is the key to doing well and feeling well is paying attention. Yes, exactly. And we, we, For we every go... study that Steve cites, I cite a philosopher. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. We, we get it. We get there in different ways. But it's interesting because, you know, I hope what we explore in this is how do we get there? It's not necessarily that like philosophy is better or worse, science is better or worse, but there is uh, rationale and thinking behind, you know, our processes to get to that point. Yeah. So to be clear, when Steve says get there, what we mean is getting to truth with a capital T or at least as close to the truth as possible. So there are some instances where science gets you all the way there, particularly in the life sciences. When you can put some cells in a Petri dish, do something to them, watch what happens, replicate that in multiple conditions, and then you can say, this is true. When I do X to the cells, Y happens. As a result, we have vaccines, we have antibiotics, we have all kinds of incredible things that allow us to live longer and better. Outside of life sciences, it is much harder to get to definitive truth from science alone. This is one of the ultimate strengths of science, but also one of the ultimate weaknesses of science. It's a strength because science continues to evolve and refine its thinking and get closer and closer to truth. It's a weakness because any good scientist will say, well, I'm not 100% certain, which then, of course, opens science up to all the anti-science people. 
that say, oh, they're not 100% certain that masks don't kill you, so masks must kill you, or whatever the anti-science um, tribe of the day is. So I think it's a good kind of disclaimer. We're not here to um, to bash science or to say that science doesn't work. We are simply here to acknowledge that once you get outside of very empirical life sciences, there are very rarely fundamental truths that come from science alone. Science gets us close to the truth, but Steve and I feel that to get even closer, it helps to look in other disciplines. And if you see patterns, if you see science pointing to the same thing as poetry, as philosophy, as daily practice, as history, that gives you a greater confidence that whatever principle or concept in question is actually true. Particularly in social sciences, the stuff that we tend to write about, when a lot of these studies are conducted on undergraduate students and the sample size is 100. So how 100 undergraduate students react to a situation in the lab is not indicative of how the world works. Now, if you've got philosophers and poets and historians and spiritual teachers from the past 2,500 years all saying similar things, then yeah, those 100 undergraduates are probably very representative. But if you don't, then you can say, maybe this is a finding that holds up true in that lab, but it might not be a broader universal truth. I just rambled a lot, but hopefully that helps set the context. Yeah, and I, and I think that pattern recognition is is the key. And knowing, you know, to me, it's knowing where you default to so that you're aware that you need to broaden your approach, right? So with myself, like I default to the scientific research, right? That's my go-to if I'm looking for that capital T truth is what does the science say? But I know that because I'm kind of inherently biased towards that, I have to be able to step back and broaden things out to check in these other areas. Yeah. And I think I'm pretty balanced personally. Like, I don't think I have a default. I think I read the most in like philosophy. And um, I think then I immediately go to modern science and say, like, you know, what are what are some empirical tests showing? Something that I got from you, Steve, a long time ago that um, I've co-opted and I use all the time in my own brain is this notion of a three-legged stool. So since it, I believe is your idea first, why don't you explain what you mean by a three-legged stool um, is a tool for evaluating ideas and right thinking? Yeah, so it gets back to this idea, which we talked about, of the more different areas come together and point in the same direction, the more confident you have. You, you can have that you're finding that capital T truth or to move forward with an idea. And if we look at a stool, if it, if it has three legs, it balances really well. It's sturdy, can feel good about sitting in it, all that good stuff. If we only have two stool, two legs of the stool, well, we can kind of make it balance maybe for a while. And if it's the, the you know, risk is worth the reward, we can give it a shot, but it's, it's on shaky ground. And if we have one leg of the stool, chances are you're going to topple and fall over. So what are the three legs of the stool? To me, it's you're looking at theory, research, and then practice or history, right? So Yeah, so let's unpack this because I know this stuff's so second nature to you and it, it might not be to everyone else. Theory is 
does this logically make sense? Based on everything we know about the world, is this a pattern that seems like it could work or it should work? Research, I think a lot of people confuse research and theory. Research is very different. Research is empirical testing. So taking a theory and testing it, ideally with a control group and ideally in multiple different circumstances and then replicating it. And then history is kind of my bucket, at least in our relationship or our creative partnership, is what do the poets say? What do the philosophers say? What do ancient wisdom traditions say? Have there been similar trends in the past? Were they fads? Did they hold true? Did they work? Did they not? Yeah. Yep, exactly. And it's when these three things come together where you're really looking at being in a good spot of, you know, finding capital T truth. And I utilize this for, I mean, just about everything I'm exploring, right? It could be, hey, does this exercise routine work, right? Something as simple as that, or going very broad and understanding, you know, um, how some aspect of the world works. If I'm looking at, you know, during COVID, for example, making decisions on, whether masks might be worth it, whether vaccines, whatever have you, whether I should stay inside, all those things is you can use this kind of stool to help um, help you on your decision-making process. And I think it's really important because, you know, if you break things apart, right, if you just look at the research, well, you might miss out on things. You just explain this in terms of it's lab-based it doesn't always get to the truth. Sometimes, you know, there is no research or very limited research on new topics. If you rely just on theory, which some people do, the if you know a little bit, it is very easy to rationalize or come up with a reason why something might be the truth and might work, right? Humans are master rationalizers. Uh, the smarter we we are, the more we can kind of rationalize or justify just about everything. So if we relied on theory only, right, we'd be in trouble. And then the same with history is there's a lot of ancient wisdom out of, out there, but there's a lot of ancient wisdom practices that if you look under it a modern lens or modern scientific lens, don't hold up, even though they've been practiced for hundreds of years. So it's why this combination is best to help you guide, help to guide you in the right direction. Yeah. All right. So then let's use a couple of examples to make this really clear. So the first example that I want to use um, is unfortunately relevant. Um, and I say unfortunate because it has the potential to cause a lot of harm to a lot of people. And that is that by wearing a mask, we'll have oxygen deprivation in our brain and it will cause long-term degradation in physical and mental health. So this comes from theory. And the theory here is as follows. Well, the human body functions best when it has maximal oxygen intake. There are diseases such as COPD where you don't have maximal oxygen intake and as a result, you suffer and organ systems decline and eventually fail. Wearing a mask in this theory hurts the amount of oxygen that actually gets into your body. Steve, you would know better than me. You're a scientist. I believe there's also a component that they feel like you don't expel a 
enough CO2 with every outbreath. So your carbon and oxygen levels are not what they should be. Okay, good enough theory. Let's move on to research. Very simple to test. Put a pulse oximeter on someone's hand, have them wear a mask, do some stuff. Put a pulse oximeter on the same person's hand, take off the mask, have them do some stuff. If their oxygen reading is significantly lower on the mask, then that gives you some reason to believe that the mask affects the amount of oxygen that one is taking, or at the very least, the carbon-oxygen balance. Okay, that has not held true in any study. Very easy to disprove. Number three, ancient history, wisdom, patterns. There have been many pandemics over the past 60 years, particularly those that mirror SARS in Asia. Asia is an enormous population that has successfully weathered these pandemics by mass mask wearing. If wearing masks caused oxygen, CO2 imbalance and deprivation in a way that caused harm, we'd see a disproportionate number of people on the Asian continent dying of diseases related to hypoxia and lack of oxygen. That has not happened. So here you've got a theory that kind of makes sense, but when you test it empirically, you have zero research to support it. And when you look across history, you have zero research to support it. So you sit on the stool, it has one leg at best, it completely topples over. That's an example of a one-legged stool. Um, what should we use for two legs, Steve? Oh, two legs. Um, well, let's go to the world of exercise because I, I think, think I know where you're going. Yeah, go ahead. This is uh, this is pretty good. I feel like um, so many so many things in exercise have two legs. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the world of exercise is essentially dealing with two legs. <laughs> um, but but here's what you have. Right. Well, outside of physical activity itself, moving your body is good for you. That has all three legs. And we'll get to that one next. Perfect. Actually, let's start there. Sorry, because it'll like we'll go we'll go broad and narrow. So moving your body is good for you. Well, theoretically, getting your heart rate up, um, having, you know, blood pump into all areas of your body, including your brain, uh, growing your muscle size, having lean body mass, all these things map to physiology and biology, and more recently, psychology in a theoretical way, where we have all these theories for why exercise is good for you. Research, very, very easy. You can do population-based studies on levels of exercise. You can do case control studies where you look at one group of people that's on an exercise program, one that's not, and then you can look at outcomes. How long do they live? Do they suffer from physical ailments? Do they suffer from mental illness? and on and on, and you can see differences between populations that exercise and don't. The research very much supports that exercise, physical movement is good for you. Then we look at ancient wisdom traditions in history. All the ancient wisdom traditions have um, significant areas where they promote exercise. Um, Buddhism, you have right livelihood, which is a way of living your life that is very ethically correct, but many interpretations also say that it is a very active way of living. Um, the Stoics were very much about using your body and having fit body and fit mind. No surprise that the Greeks, very much related to ancient Rome and the Stoics, they had this context of education should be body and mind. I believe the Latin is like sans corpus, sans something for mind, which basically says a healthy mind and a healthy body. 
So you look across history and you see that starting with the earliest written text, physical movement is there. You look to the theory and it lines up completely and you look to the research and it works and we can almost unequivocally say that moving your body regularly is good for you. So that's a nice example of where three legs hold up really strong. Awesome. Um, we'll use a two leg example now. I'll go into my world of distance running and talk about something that maybe now has three legs, but for a very long time only had three, two legs of the stool, which is we'll call it long, easy to moderate distance running as the you know key pillar or foundation to improving you know uh, distance running aerobic performance. So we'll start with theory. It's easy to rationalize, easy to justify this. Well, you know, even if I'm training for a 5K, why do I need to run a lot of easy miles? Well, you can say your heart puts you in the right heart rate zone, right, for development. You can go down the, it helps develop mitochondria and capillarization, these things that help process oxygen. Well, all of this good stuff, we can rationalize it. We can come up with a reason why lots of, long, easy, slow distance running makes sense. But for a really long time, if you looked into the research, there wasn't much good research on tying this to performance, right? So if you looked at the research, most of it showed, well, you need to do very intense work to get better. Intense work increases what we call VO2 max, maximum oxygen consumption. Like that should be the way to go, especially when I was growing up uh, and learning about this stuff in the early 2000s, that's kind of where uh, where the science pushed. Lots of interval training, this is a way to improve performance. So it, there wasn't a ton of long-term support on the key to getting better in anything from a mile to you know a marathon was lots of easy running. It was more moderate running with very intense work is where the science said. So the science didn't, we don't have this stool. But then you looked at the practice and you looked around and you looked, well, all the best East African runners from Kenya and Ethiopia were putting in lots of miles, a lot of them pretty, pretty dang slow. A lot of the best American runners, European runners were all kind of over the century of distance running. It had progressed from, you know, including only high intensity stuff to then progressing to where we mix it together, then progressing to where we do a pretty high volume of work and some interval stuff. So the practice was very robust on, hey, if you want to get really good, you got to include a large amount of uh, easy running. So you look at that and you say, well, the re there's not much research there. The research kind of points in the other direction. And some coaches, especially in the early 90s, um, took that and said, you know what, we're going to we're going to trust the research and we can theorize why that works. And we're going to go in this direction. And American performance in the distance running events plummeted. And it wasn't until we went back on that and said, hey, wait a minute, you know, the rest of the world, we can rationalize this. History shows us we need to include more easy running and uh and that turned out to be pr true. And over the last couple years, we finally gotten some great work from, for instance, Steven Seiler, who said, you know, 
here's some research to back up why, you know, 80% of your training should be relatively easy. So now we're finally approaching the three legs of the stool. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, and I think like another example that came to mind and I thought you were going to go here, that's super popular in all of fitness is foam rolling where like foam rolling is actually really interesting because the different legs kind of changed. So at first it was theoretical that, you know, by putting a lot of force on a tissue, you would loosen it up and the research wasn't really there. Like as in, you know, you'd look at people that foam rolled and didn't, and it's very hard to do like a placebo study because when you're foam rolling, you're sitting on something and when you're not, you're not. Um, but people didn't really feel as much better. But over time, you look at history, massage has been a thing, like all kinds of body work has, has been a thing. Um, and then it, at least as I've seen it recently shifted. And now the theory is pretty clear that like the amount of weight or tonnage it takes to change fascia is so far beyond what a foam roller could do. You know, like you, I, I'm pretty sure for a lot of things like plantar fasciitis, like a surgeon actually has to go in there with like a freaking hammer and like beat and then cut your fascia for it to loosen up or to release. You're not going to get that from a foam roller. So now theoretically, it makes no sense, but there are more studies that are showing that people really do report feeling better after they foam roll. So now we can say, okay, well, maybe this has got two legs, um, which is that it seems like there's some empirical research that supports it and it has been used across history, but the theory doesn't really make sense. And like you said, that's a stool that you can sit on, but you know, it's not the sturdiest stool. So what does that mean in, in practice? To me, it's simple. It means if you try, if you don't want to try foam rolling, don't worry about it. If you try it and it doesn't work and you hate doing it, stop. If you really like foam rolling and you feel better after, great, keep doing it. Um, that might change over time, but that's, you know, that's where that sits right now. And, you know, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because we just used two examples ex of things that were or have been two legs of the stool and one eventually goes towards three. The other takes a different direction. So the listeners might be asking, OK, if we have two legs on this stool, what do we do with this? Like, how do we make this decision? And I think that's where things get really interesting. But you mentioned there something that is important is if you've got two legs, right, and the risk is low, like in foam rolling, right, I'm not going to get injured foam rolling. I'm not going to negatively impact my performance to high degree foam rolling. Then it's pay attention, try things out, and don't be wedded to it, but, you know, experiment a little bit and see what you personally notice and that's okay in higher risk situations where you only have let's say two legs of the stool and there might be a danger to it or there might be a significant drawback then that tells you right there that maybe even with two legs you shouldn't even experiment or go down this route or if it's an idea like you know profess it yeah and i think um you know, what's what's really fascinating to me is we now zoom out of um, the kind of small little pond that is physical activity and exercise science and get bigger. So many of the things that have all three legs are things that you can't really sell 
and they don't fit in to like the consumer quote unquote self-care, wellness, self-improvement product area. So many of the things that only have one leg or at best two legs are very easy to sell. And I think that that is where we should go next. The Growth Equation podcast is brought to you by Patreon, our own Patreon. If you are interested in listening to our conversations and enjoy our content, then you might be interested in joining our exclusive Patreon, which gives you access to monthly book clubs where we have best-selling authors come on and hang out with us on Zoom and answer your questions. Authors like Cal Newport, Judd Brewer, Maria Konnikova, and many others. We also have a quarterly mastermind group where we bring together some of the best minds and best questions and try and answer everything for you guys. You also get access to these podcasts early and exclusive podcast contents and guides to help you along your performance you know, goals. So if you are interested, please go to patreon.com slash the growth equation to check it out. $5 a month is starting. You can get all the good stuff at $20 a month. If you drink Starbucks, we're looking between one and four coffees. If you get the really fancy stuff, we're talking one to two, one to three coffees. We really appreciate everybody that does support us. We love you all. Thank you. And if you like the show and you want to help us keep it going without ads, uh, give it a look. www.patreon slash thegrowthequation.com. Excuse me. www.patreon.com slash thegrowthequation. Yeah, so I think that... um, it's really interesting to me that, so, all right, let me step back. So the stuff that, that we know works, community, being present, um, vulnerability, uh, physical movement, which we've spoken about at length, reading books, sleep. These are things that are really hard to make some kind of product and sell. Like you can't put community into a pill. Um, People have tried to put reading into a pill. Like if you listen to other podcasts, you probably hear um, an ad for various companies. I don't want to name names. And unfortunately, there are many that promise to like take all these really deep, good books and distill them down into 10 minutes. But that's not the same thing as deep reading. And there's all kinds of legs of the stool. There's research, there's ancient wisdom, and there's just history that shows that like you can't get the full value of a book in 10 minutes. You can get maybe 10% of it in 10 minutes. Um, So yeah, you've got these products that tend to have one leg of the stool, which is often theory, and then they don't hold up to the research and they don't hold up to history. Um, And I think that's often why when you look again in kind of the personal growth, thinking, productivity, health, fitness space, you see so many of these um, internal studies, right? So I feel like almost every single wearable device says, you know, according to our internal study, such and such saw X increase in productivity or Y decrease in anxiety. 
But, you know, internal studies don't mean anything. Like if Steve and I had a product and we wanted to sell it and we wanted it to show something, we'd get like a bunch of my three-year-old son's friends and we'd test them and it would show something and then we'd publish a quote-unquote internal study. <laughs> you know, one of my good friends who uh, is a um, sports scientist and performance coach for an NBA team used to call that kind of the, the black box algorithm, right? Where every single company, and again, he'd work for an NBA team, so he'd get all these pitches. Every single company has their internal study and their black box algorithm, which, you know, is proprietary and no one can no one can know about. And that was always a, a warning sign to him is when companies or people wouldn't be open even with, you know, someone like him who's working with uh, elite athletes in a, in a big time sport. Because anytime you have this proprietary black box that numbers go into or things go into, you don't really, you, you don't really understand. You know, a few years ago, back, one of my good friends who was getting his PhD in, um, in exercise science, did some consulting work for this company and they found that while this company was testing, you know, using some sort of, it was an exercise testing company, uh, using some sort of gadget to predict, you know, these different parameters related to performance. He was like, almost all of their prediction model doesn't come from the measurement. It comes from the survey that you enter at the very beginning where you say, hey, here's my 5K PR or whatever. And it was spitting out the numbers based on that, not based on like the fancy measurement system. And the point is that was a little extreme and a little concerning. But the point was, you know, if it's a black box and you don't understand how it works, then you should your red flag should go up because that that indicates that, you know what? This is someone selling selling me something and they might not be accurate. Yeah. And, you know, it's um, we talked about this so much on prior episodes, so I, I, I don't think it's worth belaboring, but it is just fascinating that it seems that is something has all three stools. It can be harder to practice regularly because there aren't quick fixes and equally as hard, if not impossible, to try to sell for a profit in some kind of product. And I think that's because if it has three stools, it's been around for a long time. And when things are around for a long time, um, we figure out how to do them really well and efficiently. Yeah, I think you're I think you're spot on there. It's uh, it's kind of the sellability. Um I'm wondering now, so we've talked a lot about kind of products or exercise routines or things like that. What Don't about productivity hacks? <laughs> productivity hacks, right? What about ideas? Yeah. Right. Thinking. Right. So thinking. Ideas. Oh, this is the good stuff. Um, by the good stuff, I mean, to me, it's like the more complex or complicated stuff. So I'll lead off. I am very keen in my own written work on, let me, I'm, I'm thinking of this on the fly, the joy of podcasting. All right. So what I, what I want to say is that the, the greater the perceived audience in staying power for something that I communicate, 
the greater scrutiny of our good old stool that I hold it up to. So if I'm going to tweet something, it might only have one leg and that's fine. It's on Twitter, okay? People are going to hate me or love me, it's fine. If I'm going to put something in the newsletter or if I'm going to explore something in um, a newspaper article or a magazine article, it's going to have at least two legs. might not have all three. It might, but it might not. But it's going to have at least two. I'm going to be able to make a pretty strong case for it because I know that anyone that actually is going to read an article or subscribe to our newsletter is serious. And I feel like I owe that to them if they're going to take something very seriously to ensure it at least has two legs. If I'm going to put something in a book, and maybe this is naive, but I still have this idea that books are less ephemeral and more permanent, I want it to have all three legs of the stool. So that's, I, I, we haven't got into like how I go about evaluating ideas, and, I, and maybe you'll answer that question, but that's certainly how I like to think about sharing ideas. Um, and it kind of gets back to something that you said earlier. In, in a lower risk environment, you can have less legs of the stool. So for me, Twitter is lower risk. Um, Whereas a book, something that's more permanent, that anybody that spends money to buy a book is hopefully going to take what's in there really seriously, I feel like I have an obligation to get as close to the truth with a capital T as possible, even if that means leaving out a bunch of stuff that's super provocative and interesting because it just doesn't hold up to all three legs. I like that. I, I actually agree. I mean, I think Twitter is almost like a... It's a, a one-legged place. Yeah, it's a testing playground. Even even if you're trying to do things, you, you know, well, um, it's interesting. You know, the I think for evaluating ideas as well as I I still use the three-legged stool idea, but what I also bring into um, into place is what I'd call a couple heuristics, where. I'm sitting there and I'm saying, you know, if I'm hearing a new idea, if I'm evaluating something, if I see something on the one-legged stool world of Twitter and I say, hmm, what do I think about this? I, I just use some basic heuristics to guide me so that I can then apply the three-legged stool. Because when we're talking about ideas, I think it's very easy to just jump to, oh, I feel this way. Therefore, this idea is accurate or inaccurate. And we, we tend to, you know, rely on these instantaneous feelings, which I think sometimes get us in trouble. So my my goal is to give myself space to step back. And I'll give you an example of one of the heuristics, which Brad knows uh, very well, is look the other way, right? So if I, I start to see all my Twitter followers like tweeting the same thing or going in the same direction on a topic, that doesn't make me, well, my natural inclination is to, you know, go in that direction and be like, oh, yeah, like, look at all these friends or experts or people I respect going in this direction. But my heuristic is always to pause and say, hmm, turn around, look the other way and see, are we going too far in this direction? And I, I think the, you know, the other part of that heuristic is to watch out for the extremes, you know. Sometimes the extremes are, are good in a sense, right? It's easy to be like, you know, certain things are just evil or bad, right? But those 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 certain things are very few and far between. Um, and to me, they're very obvious. But what we have to watch out for is when we go, you know, when we see people dividing along these, you know, 
separate extremes is I, I might tend towards one or the other, but it's always a reminder when I see that, hey, stop, take a minute, pause, go back to the three-legged stool and evaluate this idea and don't just jump at it. Yeah, I've got two other good ones for evaluating ideas in the, the 21st century. Um, one is be wary of someone or a thinker or I should say a group of thinkers that wants to be contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. So you often see this in an individual or an organization that kind of bucks the trend on something and they turn out to be right. And it's really important and good that they're a contrarian. And then they get addicted to that feeling of kind of going against mainstream and being a contrarian. And then they start doing that in everything. So um, this is the example of the exercise scientist that has a breakthrough theory on fatigue and now thinks that carbohydrates are going to kill you. COVID isn't real, um, you know, on and on and on of like nonsense, but very contrarian nonsense. Um, it's the person that, you know, finds uh, an error in a journal article that is a good error and now wants to attack every single article there is looking for errors. It's almost like their identity becomes being a contrarian and they get this huge rush of dopamine and excitement from bucking the trend. Um, generally, if someone has a contrarian idea and they have a huge history of contrarian ideas and you can tell that that's kind of who they are, I tend not to take that person so seriously because um, just like how logic works, for something to be contrarian for someone to be contrarian, it means that like it it has to be kind of like a one in 100 thing because if 100% of things are contrarian, then everything's just wrong always. And generally speaking, things are right, um, particularly if you have a lot of well-established people saying something's right. Not always right, and it's good to have contrarian voices, but if you notice a pattern of a thinker or an organization always playing the role of contrarian, um, my red flag goes up. Something very similar to that is the person that is hunting for clicks on the internet. And this is so easy to see. I mean, this is just the person that is like being provocative for the sake of being provocative, has a hot take on every single current event. Um, and, you know, clearly is just, well, I shouldn't say clearly. To me, it's clear, probably because I spend too much time on the internet. But, um, you know, you can tell it's like an us versus them. It's a tribalism. It's an immediate reaction. It is also at the same time kind of a um, making a, a situation more trivial than it has to be and just like an out of touchness with what's actually happening. And that tends to be what I call like someone getting blinded by Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Yeah, I call that person the, the politician, right? Because yeah. <laughs> we see that a lot in politics um, and then it it... it also see it a lot. To be fair, our good friend Mara Gay, who was on the podcast a few episodes back, if you haven't listened to it, definitely check that out. It's one of the most popular ones and for good reason. Um, recently, I was despairing about politicians for that very manner. And I texted her. This was um, against the backdrop of just more and more allegations about how much of a narcissistic egomaniac monster Andrew Cuomo is coming out. And Mara covers politics in New York. And I texted her just despairing, like, oh, my God, you know, it's basically everyone but Barack Obama, just a complete malignant narcissist that goes into politics. And she assured me that, no, 30 percent of civil servants are in it for the right reasons. Um, 
Depends on if you're glass half empty or glass half full, how you look at that. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I was like, I don't know if I should feel good about the 30% number or bad. I mean, it's probably higher than, than I thought. Higher I than I would have thought. So I was a little bit pleasantly surprised. Um, but then when you step back and think about what that means, it's not very pleasant. Yes, very much so. And we're painting with broad brushes here. But I, you know, you mentioned some there, something in there that I think is interesting to pull on a little bit, which is it's obvious to you. But if you look at the support or the following of, we'll stay in politics, of very clearly like provocateurs who say something, do something to show their tribe, it doesn't matter what tribe they're in. Um, but they still have a large, we'll call it fan base or support base. So maybe it's not so obvious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's tough. And then there are people that are like legit um, kind of consist more consistent contrarians. So I'm thinking of like Nassim Taleb, Um who is a contrarian to the point where I'm very skeptical of anything he says now. And he's probably right more than half the time of the things that he's contrarian about, which is a lot. Um, I was going to pull up his Twitter for some examples and he's blocked his tweets to only um, approved people. So I don't know what that means, Nassim, but you did not approve me. Um, but no, like we, we both really love his book, Anti-Fragile. We think that just about everyone should read it. It's got phenomenal concepts and ideas in it. And it doesn't take long for you as you're reading that book to see that this guy is, um, my perception of him is he's an egomaniac. Like he goes from a chapter about how he's so much smarter than Alan Greenspan to a chapter on why everyone should deadlift. And yeah, it's a beautiful book on like this concept called anti-fragility, but Talib just can't help himself from like going on the attack and being contrarian about everything. Yeah, let, let's just be honest. You just love the chapter on the deadlifting. So no, I can know. deadlift more than Nassim Talib. <laughs> Come on. Maybe maybe that's why he blocked you, or he doesn't allow you to follow. He's like, I saw too many of those deadlifting videos and was like, no, I got to be the king of my own deadlifting community. Maybe that's what my next book needs. The one that comes out this fall is just a random chapter in there on the deadlift. <laughs> I'm sure it would do nothing but turn readers away. So don't worry. It's not going to be in there. <laughs> Deadlifting for Brad. Okay. How to get this conversation uh, back. Um, let's, let's maybe circle around. So we've gone through ideas. We've gone through products. We've included heuristics. Um, what about in your own? Let's let's explore real quick before we end in our own like writing world, because I've gotten this question a lot from uh, people who follow our newsletters and our our this podcast and other things. Is you know every week we put out a topic, you know, put out an article or newsletter. Brad writes for outside. It's a wide varied you know, range. How do you keep up to date and keep that accuracy filter um, high, Brad, while trying to explore all these different topics in all these different areas? Oh, man, that's a great question. It's really hard. It's actually part of the reason that um, I went down to a monthly column for outside. So I used to write like every other week for a time it was weekly. 
now I only do it monthly because I just felt like it was um, tiring to come up with new and interesting topics that also met at least two legs. Um, well, let me pause. For books, it's easy. As I said before, everything that I'm going to put in a book has to have three legs and books take between two and four years to research. <laughs> so there's plenty of time and space to read around and find out what is close is to the truth with a capital T. The magazine stuff, I think, you know, to be honest, man, I am just comfortable playing where there's two legs. And I say that. So most of my magazine pieces are going to be like exercise is good. Community is good. Um, smoking is bad. Um, presence is good. Here's how to do it. And address those things very clearly and beat the drum of the things with three legs and then explore the things with two legs because those can be like the interesting intellectually stimulating things and just say as much like here's what we know. We're not positive. This is an interesting idea. Here's how it's interesting. Here's how it might be wrong or here's here's when it might not apply. Um, and just be honest about it. So for me, it's like, just don't oversell something. Um, because otherwise writing, I mean, you know, writing would be boring if every single week we just said like, have community, read books, be present, sleep, don't smoke, don't drink, um, or at least don't drink too much. Um, so like the, what makes things interesting and where innovation happens is with one leg and two leg, like to be clear, Every innovation starts out with one lag and then hopefully quickly gets to two. Um, so yeah, I think it's just knowing that and being being pretty clear and transparent. And then so much of my creative um, juice comes from reading books. And I'd like to think that other people that write serious books probably also hold themselves to their highest standard when they're writing books. So if I'm getting most of my information and I'm doing most of my reading in books, in theory, I'm doing most of my reading in an area where a lot of the ideas already have three legs. Does that make sense? And then I'm just putting together different ideas with three legs. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I that's very Read interesting. Books. <laughs> I I would say I'm I'm you know I don't have the monthly column, um, but I would say I'm very similar in that regard. Um, especially with books having three legs and, and finding information. I, I, I find that books are a key for me and the selection of books, the topics to make sure I'm reading broad and varied books to keep that. Like It's like increasing my chances of coming across information that builds me towards three legs of something, right? If I just stay in one narrow area, like reading about the, I don't know, the science of stress, right? For example, if I just stay in that area, I'm going to miss all these examples from history and philosophy and other things and other experiences that apply to that area. So it's going to be hard to build up to those three legs. So it's being broad in my reading selection. And then at the same time, what are you? Oh, go ahead, Steve. Sorry. Yeah. I thought you were at done. the same time, I, I like to have what I call down the rabbit hole days where I just go down the research rabbit hole on some form of topic and go very, 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 very narrow to increase my understanding. Um, you know, to probably too much of a degree or a very high degree, more than I need, I should say, not too much. But I think that that also stimulates my thinking and my connection um, and my my intrinsic motivation to explore a topic. What are you reading now? It's funny. When we started this podcast, I'm like, maybe we should have a segment at the end of some of these. Like, what are you reading? Um, 
Ezra Klein does it and it works really well. I love his podcast. And then you teed me up perfectly. So tell me, what have you read recently or what are you reading now? <laughs> Good question. So right now I am just finishing um, the book, The Molecule of More, which is all on the science of dopamine, which is something that we've talked about quite a bit. Very um, clever title. Yeah. And then I'm reading a book called Conflicted by Ian Leslie, which is essentially how productive disagreement, you know, leads to better outcomes is the subtitle. And I think it's, uh, it, yeah, it's a very interesting read so far. And then I just finished up another book called um, Black and White Thinking. I believe the author is Kevin Dutton. And it's by a psychologist on why we do that, just that. Why do we fall for this kind of like black and white world? And, and how can we, you know, uh, bias ourselves or prepare for um, the ne inevitable going down that route because we're kind of almost programmed to see things in this kind of like categorization. So what can we do to prevent it or just be aware of it? Cool. Those sound like good books. What about you? Ah, uh, man, what am I reading? Well, a little backstory. So I got this book called The Power Broker. That is a biography on Robert Moses, who is a man that for a period of time, I'm not sure when, because I haven't read the book, more on that in a minute, basically used to run New York. And the book won a Pulitzer Prize. It's by Robert Caro, who is a very esteemed um, biographer. The book is also like 1,500 enormous pages. So I got this book and it's sitting on my bookshelf and I just can't bring myself to start it. So what's the opposite of a 1,500-page doorstopper? A bunch of short stories. So I have been on a little short story binge as of late. Um, so I'm reading George Saunders' book, A Swim in the Rain in a Pond. Um, I read George Saunders' previous book, The 10th of December, which was phenomenal. Reading a short book of essays by a woman named Sloane Crosby with the best title ever. It's called I Was Told There'd Be Cake. Um, and then I'm rereading, not a short story, Maria Konnikova's book, The Biggest Bluff, because that is our book club for Patreon members um, this month. So we'll be discussing it live. I really liked it the first time around. I figured I'd read it again so I could be fresh on all of Maria's great ideas. Awesome. Well, love it. So that's a great segue. If you want to read Maria's book or you want to listen to her or talk to her, check out our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash the growth equation yeah and um if you don't join patreon that's fine too we still appreciate you listening every week give the podcast a review on apple helps other people find it in the algorithm um i was recently told by someone that we're the best podcast that no one listens to <laughs> so please help us change that um write a review tell your friends forward it along and maybe we'll be the best podcast that some more people listen to. Uh, we appreciate all of you. And until next week, be well. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. 
is this goes a long way in helping it reach others.